Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast may be a little dirty, but forget about that. I'm going to tell you to go to our Twitter feed at slategist.com. It's Tuesday, June 16th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I speak to you from Brooklyn, where... We're apparently not allowed to sleep. Headline, Gothamist, louder, longer, and crazier. Complaints about illegal fireworks soar in NYC. Daily News, fireworks complaints skyrocket in NYC. There's been an explosion in complaints about fireworks in New York City, data shows. The city's 311 system received 1,249 complaints between June 1 and 14th. That's compared to 21 complaints during the same period last year. But hey, don't take it from me reading some words from a page. Take it from this. That was right outside my window, 12.33 a.m. a couple of nights ago. I could play the ones from 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. and some of the 175 others, but without the rest of the 1812 overture backing it up, it just sounds like noise. Now, if you search Fireworks Brooklyn on Twitter, you will find a broad panoply of all the races and all the genders united as one to say, what is up with these fireworks? But it has become racialized. Lots of white people are telling other white people, don't be a Karen. To quote Catherine Rubino, writing in the blog Above the Law of some Brooklynites who called the authorities to keep the noise down, quote, the entire incident is yet another reminder that where some see nothing but black joy and exuberance, others see a nuisance or even a threat. Okay, point. Here's a counterpoint. Am I going to call 911? Absolutely not. Are we going to commiserate with all our black neighbors again tonight, only to have them tell us that they called 911? Well, that is what happened the last two nights. And during these discussions, as my neighbors all complained about the fireworks, I could barely feel their joy and exuberance, and I just wondered what was wrong with me. But at bottom, the issue of my and my borough mate's lack of sleep is secondary to the issue of police violence, police brutality, over-policing, and of course, over-incarceration. So the Democrats in Congress have introduced legislation to ban chokeholds, mandate body cams, create a federal registry of disciplined officers, limit the transfer of military-grade equipment to police departments. Just really a bunch of good proposals that will not eliminate police killing civilians, but will lessen those instances, I believe. You can't have real true reform until you really attack the unions 
And that's a larger lift. Republicans in Congress are less into mandating the changes and more into restricting funding for departments that don't sign on to the changes. I don't know why. I mean, I do. It's pretty much a weaker version of progress that allows for the fig leaf of a state's rights justification. Also, the GOP is taking cues from the White House that they don't want qualified immunity to be taken away. Now, personally, I don't think that a change in the qualified immunity status will actually stop many shootings. The evidence is that cops shoot because they actually perceive that their lives are in danger. And I don't think they generally stop shooting in that moment of panic, real or imagined, because they imagine down the road they'll lose a civil case. But I do think it would be an act of justice overall to put police in a different category than what qualified immunity confers, which is essentially putting them in a class of person who could do no wrong. Right now, all across the country, municipalities are seriously thinking about ways to take away some of the money that is used to fund the police. A well-thought-out approach in these instances could be useful. And these developments all belong under the rubric called reform. Their reform. So if you remember the arguments I talked about that you probably heard, that reform won't work, those arguments, not the rhetoric of them, It's hard to get into that debate, but the actual de facto actions show that those arguments are being rejected. People are trying for reform, the right reforms that have never been tried before. There is a movement that insists we can improve the situation of over-policing with any of the proposals that are on the table. But I do think a lot can happen. A lot of progress can be made if our efforts are aimed at tangible change, not just looking at root causes or advancing aspirational lists of housing and social services and mental health counseling and wealth redistribution and progressive taxes. Sure, sure, advance that agenda, I say, but don't make it a requirement of the moment right now. If congressional Democrats have their proposals stymied by Republicans, then vote out Republicans who control the Senate. Don't merely hold out hope for housing, mental health, and environmental nirvana? Look, let's think of movements that really have achieved change. Mothers Against Drunk Driving, universal pre-K. There was a goal, it was identified, it was fought for, different tactics were used, there was some grassroots, there was some messaging, and then there was a changing of the rules and even a changing of norms. But with any of those, we could have said, okay, instead of focusing on the laws about drunk driving or what people think about drunk driving, no, we need to go deeper. We always need to go to the deeper level. What causes people to drink? What psychologically puts a bottle in their hand such that they have to self-medicate or change their state? We could have said, until we solve those issues, we're not going to achieve anything on the anti-drunk driving front or universal pre-K. You know, we can't make up for the paucity of language and books in the home or parental time and parental parental resources, pulling parents away from the home and necessary parenting until we dig down to those root causes, the reform of just one more year of schooling. It's not going to do anything. But you know what? Sometimes you dig so deep, you bypass the roots and you just hit bedrock and your trowel or drill bit breaks. And then where are you? So I say, identify change, change that can be made. Chokeholds, African-Americans on the force, DeRay McKesson's eight that can't wait, And address them and let union overhaul be the Hail Mary and keep working on the reforms that you haven't been able to achieve just yet and try to achieve them and see what happens. Of course, to do all this, you need to be energized and well-rested for the fight. So what I'm saying is please stop with the fireworks. 
in the name of the societal overhaul we need. On the show today, Asian conflict rages, just team coverage. But first, we have on as our guest, the director of the Division of Biostatistics at the University of Pennsylvania's School of Medicine, Jeffrey Morris and I check in as states are beginning to open. We look at what the data is saying and how to judge scenarios that aren't quite worst case, but ain't great. Dr. Jeffrey Morris up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Jeffrey Morris is a statistical data scientist, professor, and director of biostatistics at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He has the creds. He has the site. He's now on the show. Thanks for joining me, Jeffrey. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. I have a number of uh, big questions to ask you, but as I go through your blog posts, every single one sparks uh, curiosity and I think is really valuable. The latest one is about, or as of this recording, it says, in wartime science, we need to be cautious and carefully evaluate information even in top journals. So this is one main strain of the information you're trying to spread, that we have some information, but that doesn't mean that we're done and this information is solid and uh, let's put it in the book. So what are you uh, trying to communicate with this post? So yes, with this post, um, yeah, it's just communicating the challenge that we have right now in the scientific and broader community to try and come to grips with what's going on with this novel virus. And the, the trick about it is that science usually moves along quite cautiously and deliberately trying to figure out what's going on, do studies, evaluate information very rigorously. Um, but the problem is the the typical procedures that we follow in science, if we followed them at, at that case now, by the time we got answers, it wouldn't do any good for the potential millions of people that are in this first wave of the virus. So that requires us to somehow figure out how to accrue information more quickly while we're also trying to do it rigorously, but so that we can treat the current patients that are experiencing this disease. But then, of course, this raises the problem of rigor and of mistakes being made. And so this post, I'm, I'm kind of highlighting that tricky balance we have to strike, making the argument that we do need to do things faster so we can get knowledge to treat these patients. We have to also be very careful because there can be some bad science that slips through and some information that we start acting upon um, that is not accurate information. So there is a post of a couple of uh, weeks ago, and I'll just ask you the headline as a question. Why do some COVID-19 patients infect many others, whereas most don't spread the virus at all? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So that post, I was um, talking about a specific article, but what, what that's especially dealing with is the phenomenon that this virus seems to spread in super spread events and in clusters. 
So it's not that every person who is infected seems to be spreading it evenly to those around them, but somehow a small number of individuals seem prone to be super spreaders and spread it to many people around them. And this is maybe, I wouldn't say unique, but it's definitely a defining characteristic of this virus that has major implications in how we try and mitigate or prevent its spread. I am respectful of how science works, and I know that there's so much uncertainty, and that's why there's such a thing as preprints and such a thing as peer review. But, you know, if you're a governor or a mayor and you have to make choices next week or in three weeks about this, you just go with the best estimates. So let's talk about a couple of these things. One is seasonality. I've heard esteemed scientists say, we don't know. We just don't know. There's some evidence that the weather might not really affect the virus as we assume it does. Akiko Awasaki of Yale makes this point. But then when I look at some of the research that you've cited and just the incidence of the virus by place according to you know the average degrees, it does seem to be a correlation. So not in terms of what can we absolutely prove to the best standards of science? But if you're a governor or if you're a mayor and you're saying, you know, is June a time to open up and might we be helped by the warmer weather? What's the answer to that? Right. So, so I can mention two things about, about my opinion about opening up based on the data, but also the seasonality. It does seem like there's significant evidence for a seasonality effect, but there's also um, evidence that the seasonality effect is not enough to completely make the virus go away, or at least it looks that way right now. But one thing, one thing I'll mention, there's, um, there's a group um, po- uh, called Policy Lab at the Children's Hospital of uh, Philadelphia, right, right sort of next door and affiliated with Penn. There's a group I'm collaborating with that is doing some, some sort of statistical epi modeling of, of the county level incidents and relating it to different factors and using this for projections. Um, you, you can see the link on, on my, some of my blog posts and on their webpage, they're putting out weekly projections. And this has gained a fair amount of visibility. It's Deborah Burks has shown interest in this and the results have gotten presented to her each week. And, and I think this is partially informing her and locating hotspots. But anyway, the, with this modeling, one of the important factors in the model is temperature and humidity. So when you model the incidence curves across the counties in the U.S. over time, it's very clear that temperature and humidity have some type of an effect. And we think that some of the data that we're seeing now this month, we think that's starting to kick in even more. So the way I think about it is that high temperatures and especially high humidity with high temperatures seems like it can be a mitigating factor that will reduce the spread of the disease and definitely help in our efforts, you know, to to find safe mitigation strategies that allow society to open up, but yet still protect against initiating any new surge of infections. Have we been overly concerned with spread out of doors? That's something that I really wish there was firm studies on I think that outdoors is a lot safer than we realize, just in my reading of the data, but I wish there was more definitive information. There was a study 
in Japan that showed the infection spreading about 20 times more efficiently indoors than outdoors. There's a, a great blog post by Aaron Bramage, a microbiologist from Massachusetts that went completely viral back in May. I think he had 13 million views in one week. And he went into a lot of detail looking at the super spread events and trying to break down somewhat quantitatively how the virus sort of spreads and, and making the point that a key is how much volume of virus you are exposed to. And that's part of the reason for the super spread events and why the indoor may be a, a bigger risk because there's a lot more chance for virus to accumulate and then people to be exposed to a large amount of the virus. Where outside, a lot more of it is going to dissipate in addition to being exposed to sunlight and to the heat and humidity, all of which seem to be helpful for slowing the spread of respiratory illnesses. When you get, I assume you get occasionally a package delivered to you, do you wipe it off? This is, this is a proxy for asking, what about uh, transmission via surfaces? Over time, I've become a little less concerned about that. And I found it interesting how the CDC sort of tweaked the description of the guidelines on their site, suggesting that solid surfaces was not the primary mode of spread, that it was respiratory and aerosol droplets, basically through the air being close to people who are infected. And, and so when I first saw that, I was actually a little bit disturbed by that because when you read it carefully, it's not saying that it cannot spread through, through these means. It's just saying it's not the primary. It appears the primary is respiratory. So, so my thought about it is, yes, we should be careful. We should still practice these things, but maybe that's not the main thing that we should worry about. And this, this kind of gets on one of my big sort of philosophical points about all of this, that I think when the virus, you know, first descended upon us and was, was spreading rapidly through the country, when it was clear it couldn't be contained, that we had community spread and the statewide lockdown started very quickly through the country. I think that I agree with that approach that we didn't know enough about the virus at that time. And, and we had to do that to be careful because we didn't know how dangerous it was. We didn't know how fast it spread. We didn't know how it spread. But then after about a month, after I saw evidence accruing, I felt like we should be loosening things up a little more, putting into action the things that we're, we're learning and stepping out a little bit. And so that started happening a bit later than what I thought it should. And, and part of my philosophy is just that that strategy of doing a lockdown or a complete stay-at-home order, closing all non-essential businesses, it is going to slow the spread of the virus. But there's incredible collateral damage that's very tough to quantify. People are trying to quantify it a little now, but it's, it's devastating. And the question is, how much benefit are we really getting by taking that extreme of a step? And I think that the way people thought of it is um, they thought of the early projections based on sort of static epi models, like coming from, for example, the Imperial College group that projected there would be 2.2 million American deaths and on the order of 100 plus million infections. So that's what we thought would happen if we didn't do these lockdowns. So the question is, is that what would have happened if we didn't do those lockdowns? And I, I kind of don't think so. And this is one of the things that gets into kind of statistical data science a little bit trying to think about causal inference and counterfactuals. Like with observational data, you can't know what caused what. 
you can try and discern it, but, but conceptually you can think about what would have happened if. So, so what would have happened if we wouldn't have done the lockdowns, if we would have taken lesser mitigation steps? Would we have more cases and more deaths? Almost certainly. How much more? I'm not sure. But I think that that's an interesting question that we need to think about in an open-minded fashion to find the right balance. So I think that the real key game here really for society is to figure out accurately how this is spreading and what the risks are so that we can devise the most targeted mitigation strategies we can. You know, I've talked a lot about the Sweden model and the way I look at it is you could say, all right, it didn't turn into the Lombardy region of Italy, but it's worse than Denmark, Finland, and all its other Scandinavian neighbors, like remarkably worse. So I guess there is a question of what's the baseline that you're comparing yourself to. And uh, secondly, if I look at Georgia, you're right. So far, it doesn't seem to be huge exponential growth. But at what point do you say, okay, this was a failed experiment? Well, I, I think we have to think about what is the game here? Like, is the game to make the virus go to zero and go away? If that's the game then we should lock up and stay locked up for an ex a super extended period of time. But the problem is winning that game doesn't matter if we lose the other games, you know, that are going on in, in society, obviously. So I think the trick is, what should we be trying to do here? What are our expectations? And I think the idea of getting the virus to go completely to zero before we open up, in my opinion, is too conservative and I think isn't the right question because the virus is spread all over the world. So it's just not going, you know, just to go away. So the question is, how far should we go trying to mitigate its spread relative to the other contagious diseases that we have that spread around? And I think the balance is the key question. So right now I have the Georgia um, statistics and the seven day moving average for death has just gone down, 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 down. But if it goes back up, 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 so right now it's in the single digits, but on May 11th, it was in the 30s. If it goes back up to the 30s or the 40s, do we say, okay, it looks like they opened up too early? So, so I think that monitoring the death is fine, but it's so lagged because some people, the people who are dying today were probably infected, you know, a month ago, maybe six weeks ago. So waiting until then, to make a change in the mitigation strategy would be way too late. But the question to me is what should be done? Should we step in and lock things down if incident starts going up? Personally, I don't think that's probably the best strategy. I think there's other things that we can do. And I think a big part of it is getting across and educating the public and learning what are the key targeted mitigation steps that give us the most bang for our buck in terms of preventing spread. Jeffrey S. Morris is the director of biostatistics at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Check out his writing at covid-datascience.com. That's covid-datascience.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. I saw the headline, North Korea blew up peace talks and said, well, North Korea is always playing these games of brinkmanship. But by games of brinkmanship, I didn't literally mean they were playing hopscotch on the edge of a cliff. But in this case, blowing up peace talks literally meant blowing things up. 
reduced to rubble at around 2.50 p.m. local time. As promised, Pyongyang has destroyed Kaesong's inter-Korean liaison office. The official reason? Defectors sending anti-North Korea propaganda across the border. Yes, that was France 24, the New York Times reports, Seoul, South Korea. North Korea on Tuesday blew up a building where its officials and their South Korean counterparts had recently worked side by side, dramatically signaling its displeasure with the South after weeks of threats to end the country's recent detente. Signaling displeasure. Do you think Kim Jong-un is saying signaling displeasure? What do I have to do to get the times to use some action verbs? If I piss on the South Korean flag, will I call it an increasingly perturbed North Korea indicated its growing lack of contentment? I poisoned my half-brother. Was that a general critique? Going as far as to offer a quite forceful rebuke to the notion of my brother being able to successfully exhale? So yeah, North Korea blew up negotiations. I guess bombs in your court, South Korea. I was thinking maybe the North would allow the rest of the world to interpret for itself what it did. Maybe that we could all decide, I guess they're just really committed to disinfecting the area in their fight against coronavirus. But no, because hours later, the North's official news agency said, quote, the liaison office was tragically ruined with a terrific explosion, adding that the action reflected, quote, the mindset of the enraged people of North Korea. Oh, to be a North Korean pollster. Okay, so let me ask you, sir. If your mindset were to be expressed via, say, ordnance or munitions, what would the explosion be saying? Would it be saying, A, I appreciate you, B, I respect you, C, I'm quite upset with you? Aha, uh-huh, another C. Because this time, say it with bombs. Because the South has been saying it with balloons. You heard the reference in that France 24 clip to sending propaganda across the border. Much like blowing up negotiations isn't figurative, On the Korean Peninsula, neither is sending a message, floating a trial balloon, or airing grievances. Because dissidents in South Korea have routinely sent helium-filled balloons floating over the DMZ and dropping anti-North Korean leaflets into the North. North Korea would viciously pop the balloons, reflecting the mindset of the enraged people. But recently, they did go further than that, Reuters reports. On Thursday, the influential sister of North Korea's leader warned South Korea to stop defectors sending leaflets into the demilitarized zone separating the two countries. Kim Yo-jong threatened that the North may cancel a recent bilateral military agreement if the activity doesn't stop. And so it went, a tit-for-tat, your balloon drops lead to our detonation. It was like a slow-motion multi-party Hindenburg. In other Asian state-sponsored violence, India and China fought, battled, went at it. 20 Indian soldiers have died in a confrontation with Chinese forces in Ladakh in disputed Kashmir. That's according to Delhi officials. It's the first deadly clash in in the border area in at least 45 years. BBC reporting. If you thought bombs and balloons were primitive, an Indian government source said the troops fought with iron rods and stones and that no shots had been fired. The Indian newspaper, The Tribune, added, most of the deaths have occurred as soldiers fell off cliffs during a physical fight in the narrow Galwan Valley into the river at an altitude of 15,000 feet. Some died due to hypothermia and other injuries. What a grab bag of carnage. At issue was the border. Let me describe it. This is from a CNN story. Retired Indian General Bikram Singh said that part of the problem is that the de facto border, the LAC, line of actual control, is so ill-defined. 
quote, at strategic and operational levels, both militaries have exercised restraint. However, at the tactical level, face-offs occur due to differing perceptions of where the actual border is as the LAC, line of actual control, is not delineated on the ground. So it's actually not actual. Both sides think to themselves, well, that's not actually the line. It was described in some news accounts as differing perceptions of the line of actual control. That would make it the line of perceived control. And it's no wonder why more attacks haven't happened in the last three decades. If you combine rocks, cliffs, coldness, and what is at best a line of perceived control, good things will not be happening. So to recap, a day in Asian attacks, an example of metaphorical brinksmanship ends in an explosion, literally an explosion in North Korea, and an example of literal brinksmanship turns metaphorically explosive, but not yet literally explosive in India. Or maybe it was China. Don't at me. Don't attack me with rocks. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the GIST's associate producer. She remembers the fiscal cliff. Remember that? And that always reminded her of the villain Mr. Mixelflick, the imp from the fifth dimension who battled with Superman, who if you tricked Mr. Mixelflick into saying his name backwards, you could zero out spending for the import-export bank. Daniel Schrader, GIST producer, was gratified to see that news of the North Korean detente reversal was just blowing up on Twitter. The GIST. If balloons cause Kim Jong-un to blow up a building, I wonder if a candy gram could somehow trigger him into poisoning another sibling. You know, his sister seems to be getting pretty powerful. Maybe a well-timed cameo call from Dennis Rodman could put her in the crosshairs. Who knows? Maybe Kim Jong-un just hates balloons. Some people see nothing but South Korean dissident joy and exuberance. Others see a nuisance or even a threat. Oom um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening.